You're listening to TIP. I could not believe the amount of amazing information that I got today on the interview with Piero Scarufi. He has been a visiting scholar at both Harvard and Stanford, conducting research on artificial intelligence and cognitive science. He lectured on the nature of mind, the history of knowledge. His book, History of Silicon Valley, was named the seventh most influential book in China in 2012, and he was named tech advisor to Guangzhou in 2018. We talk about how does one define artificial intelligence? Who's going to lead the AI race in the coming years? Will it be US, China, or someone else? How far along is autonomous cars? And what is the big technology that we're going to see next here in Silicon Valley? Once again, this is just a fascinating interview, and I know everyone at home is going to love this. You are listening to Silicon Valley by The Investors Podcast, where your host, Sean Flynn, interviews famous entrepreneurs and business leaders in tech. Discover how money is made in Silicon Valley and where tech is going before it gets there. I'd like to start off with just the audience finding out a little bit more about your background. Could you tell us about how you got into artificial intelligence. Yes, so thank you for inviting me. So most of my life was not planned. I got into AI when I came to the United States. I had a degree in mathematics from Italy. I came to the United States by accident, working as a software engineer. And at the time, that was early 80s, and AI had one of its brief booms. There's been many booms and busts in the history of AI. And at that time, my company was interested in starting an artificial intelligence center. And I seemed to have the right background, so I started it. I wasn't completely convinced about what AI could deliver. But anyway, this lab grew to become the 10th largest non-academic AI lab of European company. That was a European multinational. So I had the center here in Cupertino and in Europe. And then I started writing books about this. So today that AI is popular again, I can claim that I wrote my first book on AI 34 or 33 years ago. So of course it was a totally different kind of AI. And today AI has changed dramatically, so that there's again a lot of interest, a lot of hype. So my book is titled Intelligence is Not Artificial, which already gives away my take on some of the hype. So then what would you consider or could you explain to us artificial intelligence? That's the problem. When, whenever we have discussions, whether it's business or philosophy, that is the problem. What is your definition of AI? Because you hear people talking about all sorts of things, and very few of those things are what people of my generation consider AI. So first of all, what do people mostly talk about? So there's, in my opinion, two main kinds of AI that people talk about. One doesn't exist. I call it the Hollywood AI. Okay, the things you see in Hollywood movies that doesn't exist, in my opinion, will not exist anytime soon. So all the fear about the machines taking over or whatever, or all the hopes about immortality coming from machines, wildly exaggerated, in my opinion. And the other kind of AI that people talk about a lot is actually not AI because it is real, but it's so trivial. It's just automation. I call it the Chinese AI because I spend a lot of time in China. And in China, they're calling pretty much everything AI, everything that automates some task. They call it AI. Classic example is robots. There are millions of robots in the world, but most of the robots are just arms that perform one function, always the same function over and over and over. 
their value is that they can work 24 hours a day and they don't get sick, but they're not intelligent, okay? Well, I mean, some people call AI all of automation. So these two things, in my opinion, are most of what people talk about. Now, the automation, I think we should just call it automation. And this way we don't get into arguments that are driven by the word intelligence, okay? We're just, you know, using automation as we did since the invention of the steam engine. Even before that, the clock was invented 1,000 years ago. It is a form of automation. In fact, the clock can do something that none of us can do. Even Einstein cannot do. You know, it tells you how many minutes I've been speaking. So that's automation. And then artificial intelligence, the Hollywood AI is AI. I mean, that's what the scientists, the AI scientists are trying to do. You know, machines that can... uh, understand what I'm saying, machines that can drive cars and fly planes and so on and so on. The real AI that is out there now is really in between. And unfortunately, it's very limited. Okay. It's very far from being the Hollywood AI. Of course, at, at a selfish level, a lot of people like me who have a background in AI are very happy that there's so much talk going from the Hollywood AI all the way to the China AI. We have a new career all of a sudden. So if you ask 20 people in AI a definition of AI, they will give you 20 different definitions. The reason is very simple. Define intelligence. You ask 20 psychologists, they will give you 20 different definitions of intelligence. So it's really hard to pinpoint what AI is and even harder to pinpoint what AI is in reality. Even worse, the AI that I was doing in the 80s is only vaguely related to the AI that they're doing now. Who do you think will lead the AI race in the coming years? Will it be the US or do you think it will be China or do you think they will just complement each other? So China is number one in applying research. Okay. I always joke, not so much joke. I've written lengthy articles on my website that China offsourced research to the West. We offsourced shoe manufacturing to China. They offsourced the research to us. They wait for us to do all the research, take all the risk, experiment, and so on. Then when something works, they take it, they apply it, and they apply it to a huge base. I mean, think what uh, Alibaba, WeChat have done to China. These are applications that spread like wildfire. And if you come back just 10 years, China hardly had computers. I mean, they, they basically skipped the mainframe, the mini computer, the personal computer, they just, you know, phone. So they're very good at applying ideas. And that is also true in AI. So if you're talking about practical applications of AI, I think China is already winning. They took, for example, speech recognition and uh, they made devices you can buy. Uh, They are expensive by Chinese standards, but you can buy them. They work offline and they do automatic translation. Here we are still in the age of online translation. Very good, but you have to be on Wi-Fi or cell phone signal, whatever. Same for robots. I mean, in China, it's not, you don't have to be in a five-star hotel. There are already robots that will take you to your hotel room. Now, how intelligent is that? It's actually not very intelligent. You know, the robot always follows the same path. It keeps saying, unfortunately, all in Chinese, get out of my way. It has a direct communication with the elevator, so you can call the elevator. It knows which floor your room is at, so it can program the elevator to go there. Then it follows the route to your room. And in some cases, it even opens the room. Some of them carry your luggage and so on. In these kind of things, China is always better. I mean, China will always win, in my opinion. They're just so good at applying a new idea to very practical chores. 
and same good or bad, same in, uh, in uh, face recognition, right? I mean, they deployed on a vast scale security cameras that recognize uh, faces. You know, millions of people have been already archived. Their face has been archived that they can be recognized in the crowd. So for that kind of AI, for the applied AI, I think China is already one. For the real research, for the things that really interest me, you know, the things that academia is working on, I don't know, self-supervised learning, which is a new kind of machine learning, and it's more natural in my opinion, and it could really break through. Then you read the papers that are all ours, ours meaning West, mostly US, some in Europe, Israel, and so on. It's rare to see a Chinese paper that really has a novel idea. By the way, the Chinese publish more papers than the United States now in AI. But their papers, typically, what do they do? Well, you guys invented this new type of neural network. We just improved it. And look, we achieved the highest score ever in accuracy of recognizing something. Okay, that's where the Chinese win. The Chinese win in that also because, by the way, they graduate 6 million STEM students a year, science, technology, engineering, math. And as anybody in academia knows, Chinese students tend to be the best. So it's not only 6 million, but 6 million very bright students and paid the relatively low salaries in China. Very intelligent, very educated labor force to throw on uh, applying these ideas to practical things. So, you know, the short answer is China is winning, but I wanted to spend a little time to emphasize in terms of research, they are way behind. I was interviewed in China. The interviewer got offended when I said 20 years behind. I said, what? 20 years behind? I mean, we have everything. But I was talking about research. And not only in software, by the way, also in hardware. And all this trade war is actually showing how weak they are in, in basic research. They still buy from us the fundamental pieces of hardware for their smartphones, their Android operating system. So in terms of research, they are behind, but in terms of application I think they already won and they will keep leading, I think, for a long time. There's nothing, I don't see anybody in the West that has the same kind of very practical approach to application of new ideas. How far away are we from having autonomous cars everywhere in the US? The vast majority of automation, forget the term AI, relies, first of all, on us humans structuring the environment for the machines. If you visit the Amazon factory in Arizona, the fully automated factory, there's robots doing everything, but you can't have people crossing the floor. You certainly can't have children playing around. You can't have a cat walking around. So the environment is being structured in such a way that that factory is so automated. You see robots moving back and forth, communicating with each other and so on. The self-driving car, first of all, relies on somebody having structured the road. Okay, the self-driving car looks for solid white lines, looks for signs. Somebody has to put these things. Now, the more you structure the road, the easier it is to have a self-driving car. In fact, we have self-driving vehicles. They're called trains. Okay, any subway in the world today, I think, is fully robotic. So the question is really, what do we have to do? How do we have to structure the environment so that and a self-driving car can operate and operate safely. So that's the big question. And I think that will require a lot of effort. If we don't do that, if you're asking me with the current roads right now, as it is with the current traffic, 
with children possibly crossing the street, uh, you know, at an unpredictable moment, with FedEx trucks stopping uh, where they, they shouldn't stop and blocking traffic and so on and so on. I don't think that technology is anywhere near. And that's why you don't have the car. Sergey Brin, a few years ago, maybe in 2013, he predicted that by 2017, that there will be commercially available self-driving cars, implying, you know, not just one or two, tens or thousands. Well, it's not there, it's not going to be there. And I suspect investment in fully autonomous uh, vehicles is shrinking, not increasing, because they realized how difficult it is. And they realized also the liabilities. I mean, three people died already, at least three people died. I don't know if we heard all of them. It's obvious that this thing is not reliable. It's not reliable. See, AI scientists are also guilty sometimes because they publish the paper saying this machine can recognize your wife more with a lower error rate than you yourself can. Now, this is true in specific circumstances, but the machine could mix think that it's not your wife, it's a tree, which you would never do. It's not a tree. I mean, it's in a house. There are no trees in houses. And the same for many other machines can be very accurate in recognizing apples. But when they make a mistake, they confuse the apple with something that we wouldn't do. So that's the thing. Machines don't have common sense, period. Now, no matter how smart a person is, you want that person to have common sense before you can trust the person. And actually, any driving test is about common sense more than it is about observing the rules. The way you turn right has to feel natural, have to feel safe. How do you describe that in formulas? Depends on the circumstances. I mean, are there two children on the sidewalk? Well, then your right turn is totally different from the case in which there are two adults. There's an infinite number of these rules. So if we don't structure the environment, the fully autonomous car is not coming anytime soon. What you are going to have is things that improve your safety when you drive. I mean, the simplest example is the camera, right? That shows you what's going on behind you. And you can have a lot, if you spend money, you can have a lot more sensors around the camera that will give you useful information. Uh, if you want to have fully autonomous cars, then you have to restructure the environment. It implies redesigning the streets and probably deploying a lot of transmitters there, a lot of beacons that will send signals to the cars. Now, if you completely remove human beings, one day I was having this discussion with a former Google engineer. At one point, he got upset and he said, yes, but that's only because we have all these stupid human beings driving cars. He was 100% right. If you remove the human beings, of course it works. You have only self-driving cars on the road. You have no pedestrians. You have no children. Ideally, no dogs, no cats. Well, then the self-driving car is absolutely safe, just like a train is safe. We are reinventing the train in a sense. What do you think is the next big thing from Silicon Valley? So a few years ago, it was AR, VR. Then it was artificial intelligence. Then most recently, most people would say blockchain. What do you think is next? Oh, I think and hope that it is biotech. And even the term biotech is becoming too generic. I mean, there's, uh, you have gene editing is the one that very publicized. And on that one, I have some reservations Last year, there was a paper that sort of showed that, that you have to be careful. But certainly, obviously, the potential of gene editing is colossal, way, way more than uh, artificial intelligence. And then uh, in biotech, you have a liquid biopsy, the idea that someday uh, a drop of blood will tell people if you have cancer or not. That saved millions of lives. 
And then you have the, this CAR T cells. The immune system actually has cells to fight cancer called T cells. Sort of superheroes, you know, Marvel style cells that fight cancer. If you get cancer, it means they didn't do their job. Why? Well, either the cancer was too strong or you don't have enough cells so you can manufacture them. And then there's uh, crazy things. Uh, I don't know if you heard of IVG in vitro and then G is a very complicated Latin name. And this was invented, I think, in 2015. Japanese scientists proved it on mice. They can take a skin cell and turn it either into a sperm cell or an egg, female egg cell, which means think of a couple cannot have children. They take one cell, skin cell from the woman, one skin cell from the man. They create the embryo in vitro and you have babies. Even better, you can take two skin cells from the same woman and make an embryo. So this has been done on mice. So biotech, the potential is incredible. And unlike AI, the hype is real. It's not just hype. So I think biotech, the potential is enormous. And that's the place. If I were Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and so on, I would be worried about biotech, not about AI. 2016, you wrote the book, Humankind 2.0. We found was the most influential book in China. You were also named the tech advisor for Guangzhou. Can you tell us about that experience? So the book is written in Chinese and I cannot write a single letter, a single character in Chinese. So obviously it was written by somebody else. It was written by Jin Shanyu. I had the ideas. I had the ideas on where the technologies are going to. The book became obsolete very quickly, which means we are right about most of those things. They did happen. That's the problem with technology. Your predictions are right. They will sound old very quickly. But it was just a panoramic on the research that's being done. Of course, it was very much focused on the Bay Area because that's where we live. So we interviewed a lot of scientists here, startups, and we just gave a panoramic of where it was going. It was not my first book published in China. The first book published in China was a translation of my history of Silicon Valley. That's the book that really made me quote-unquote famous in China. And then you also have a new book coming out on social responsibility for tech companies. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit more about that book and what you hope to accomplish? So the, it's not only for uh, companies, it's for uh, really everybody. So the book is titled, again, it's in Chinese. Again, it was written by Jing Shanyu, and this time she did a lot of the work. It's called Peace Technology, or the English title is Peace Tech. The Chinese title actually is Peace and Technology. When we finished Human 2.0, and it was a very big project, Jing Sha asked me, okay, there's all this great technology coming, but what does it do for uh, the people of the village, the mountain village where I come from? She's from a very poor village in China. And that was a very good question. So then uh, we had the motivation to look into more, uh, quote unquote, humanitarian uh, uses of technology. We became friends with the Peace Innovation Lab at Stanford that most people don't know, they should know. And we learned all this fascinating interdisciplinary discipline, not a branch of a discipline, really very interdisciplinary, that is about peace technology. There's academic definition of peace, and there's a way to measure peace. You and somebody who's walking in the parking lot right now are at peace. You're not fighting each other, but that peace is zero. You and me right now are at peace and we're doing something together. So you can measure this. You can say there's more peace between us than between you and that stranger. And if we cooperate and we collaborate, we build something together, especially if we build the wealth that benefits everybody. 
then that measure of peace goes up and up and up. So the question is, what kind of technologies can help improve peace? Now, this does not help in Syria, right? It does not help stop conflicts that already happen. But it could help create societies where conflict is less likely. So that's what the book is about. You know, all the people are working around this theme. And it was fascinating. The group at Stanford is doing really the foundations. So you talk to them, you get all the background on uh, the concept I told you in one minute. I mean, there's a lot more behind it. But then we found groups uh, ranging from psychologists, biologists, of course, computer scientists, people in the sharing economy, Airbnb, Uber, they're all interested in the concept of trust. How do, you, how do you measure trust? Well, that's a form of peace. I mean, you take a Uber a ride, that's not trivial. You have to trust the stranger and he has to trust you, both at the, at the physical level and at the financial level, right? So there's a lot of people studying this. Of course, biologists have been studying cooperation you know, for decades uh, among animals, among humans. We learned that DARPA, the defense agency, had funded the project for uh, soldiers to improve uh, their connection with uh, the people, I think, of Afghanistan, anyway, one of the areas where they were. At DARPA realized it's a big problem if there is hate towards our soldiers. That's a bad way to start, right? So there was a multi-year project involving SRI, UC Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, to use virtual reality, AI, many other things. I learned of it because there was a fascinating paper written by Mohammed Amer at SRI to measure and improve the relationship between, you know, a soldier and a civilian in these situations. I go to China all the time. China now claims to have more than 400 smart cities. I get worried when I hear this. What is a smart city? Is it a place where you just have algorithms that direct traffic? I mean, are we talking only about, I mean, is a city only about buildings and cars and traffic lights? What about the human beings who live in the city? So I get very worried when I hear that somebody's planning a smart city. China is number one. That's why I mentioned China, but US, Europe, everybody's planning smart cities. But if you look inside, at best, they give you a park. What do you do for people? A park, you know, or a place where you can watch old movies. Is that all we can do in a smart city? Is that our definition of smart? So this peace technology could also be used to think how can we improve the connection between the people, their cooperation, their collaboration. All these terms have actually academic meanings, okay? And these scientists are trying to find ways to measure this and to improve this. And in the age of big data, I think that's how you should use data. You know, it's scary that all big data are in the hands of government agencies they want to find out what you are doing or in the hands of corporations that want to sell you things you don't need. And it would be nice if this big data were used to understand what really makes people feel that they're living a meaningful life in a meaningful society. And a book that you also wrote in the past, The History of Silicon Valley, you'd mentioned it a little bit earlier. In this book, what advice do you have for cities or countries who are trying to mimic what is here in the Silicon Valley ecosystem? If you read my history of Silicon Valley, which is, by the way, 600 pages, it's not, it's not just about the stars. It's really about how this thing developed. If you read the book, you realize that I spent a lot of time studying society. Why? Well, because I'm from Europe. So when you tell me Silicon Valley has this and this and this and this, I can easily pinpoint places in Europe that had the same things. And some of them had it 10 times better. You know, I, I mean, like it's ridiculous to say Silicon Valley at Stanford. 
Stanford was a small university in the 50s, and a lot of professors didn't want to come to Stanford. Who wants to go into that forsaken Bay Area, whatever it is? And for a long time, that was the truth. You know, it was even difficult to move engineers to California. It was easy to move old people to Los Angeles. So when people mention the things that are special about Silicon Valley, and I don't believe most of them. Most of them, you know, they existed somewhere else. And by the way, the money was in, in New York and London. The big electronic companies were on the East Coast and in Western Europe. The Nobel Prize winners. I mean, when did California win the first Nobel Prize? I don't know, but a long time ago. It took a while for California to start winning Nobel Prizes the same way that France or Germany wins them. And the big universities, come on, Princeton, because MIT, Harvard, Pennsylvania, the Moore School. These are the places where computers were born and, and improved. And uh, Columbia University, New York, you know, Yale, they were on the East Coast. And in Europe, Oxford, Cambridge, the first computer was designed, built in Cambridge. So why Silicon Valley? Now, let's forget technology for a second. Let's go back to the 40s, 50s, and ask what was special about the Bay Area? What was really special about the Bay Area? Of course, not technology. I mean, in the 50s, probably Boston had 90% of the software engineers of the United States. So what was special about the Bay Area in the 50s? I think if you lived in the 50s and you ask anybody in New York or Boston what is special about the Bay Area, they would have the answer. It was so obvious. Crazy artists, crazy musicians, crazy people. And in the 60s, even crazier. And in the 70s, still crazy people. So what was really special about, I'm simplifying, of course, that crazy needs to be qualified. But that was what's special. It was society that was so different. It was so different. And that technology came, it came by accident because of the World War II, because of the Cold War. But when technology came, this crazy society did something crazy with the technology. So I think if you studied the society, it's not so difficult to believe that here everything was different. I mean, computers were big on the East Coast and they were for banks and governments. And here, somebody at Zero Spark looked at the computer as big as the whole building and said, I want to put a computer on a desk. And initially it was for children, school children. Okay. And somebody at SRI decided I want to have a distant conference call with my co-workers. So it's, and by the way, when I came to here in the 80s, we were using the Unix operating system as the original Facebook in a sense. It was the place that had the interest groups so you could change information, meet friends, exchange files. Unix operating system was invented by AT&T, the biggest corporation in the world. It was never meant to be used by kids to talk about rock music. So this is a place where stupid ideas are great ideas. Some other people do stupid things with technology and invent the iPhone. So that's the thing that is special about Silicon Valley. It's the society. So when people in Shenzhen, China, or Austria, to name two places where I was invited to talk about this, ask me, how can we replicate Silicon Valley? I roll my eyes and I think, hopeless. You have just different societies. And there's nothing wrong with your society. But it's just a different society. You will not get Silicon Valley. You will not. It's just a different way of thinking. What you can do, you can learn things from Silicon Valley. Simple example, me. I'm an immigrant. There are so many immigrants. I mean, you go to a party and sometimes if you were born and raised in the United States, you're a minority. If you were born and raised in the Bay Area, you are definitely a minority. I want to see a party where the majority were born and raised in the Bay Area. So one thing you can learn is that this is a place where immigrants are an asset, 
not a liability. Immigrants are an asset. They come with ideas, with a different mindset. and They are productive minds. You can learn the value of meritocracy. You know, in many countries, both in Asia and in Europe, the CEO of a company is usually the son or the daughter or the nephew. Here, name one company that is led by the son or by the nephew of the founder of a previous CEO. It is more of a meritocracy. And you learn the value of diversity. You know, not only because we go to work in t-shirt and shorts, sometimes not even a t-shirt, but because we value to respect. Fortunately, now we have a bad name for that. But, you know, gender, there's more respect, at least pretend. I don't know how often we applied, but there's more respect for different gender. And the gay community in San Francisco has always been a major contributor to the cultural life of this place. Ethnic groups, we have absolute tolerance. If you have an accent like me, you will never correct it because nobody looks down on you because you have an accent. There are things they can learn from us. What do you know about Silicon Valley that people from the outside just don't understand? Actually, I was pleased a couple of months ago, I was at a party and I met this woman from New York who works for a venture capitalist. And I asked her, so what was your impact? You know, moving, what was your cultural shock moving from New York to this place? And she said, huge, huge shock. People just think different here. So no matter how many times you came for a business trip, for a meeting, how many friends you have here, until you start working here, you don't realize the spirit, that the spirit is so different. I think it's changing in the big corporations. I mean, this is new, right? I mean, if you go back 20 years, we didn't have big corporations. HP was probably the biggest in iTech. Now we have Google, which is number one in its field. Facebook is number one in its field. Intel is probably still number one in its field. Oracle is number one in its field. And, goes, and the list goes on and on. Netflix, Airbnb, Uber, Tesla. It's even difficult to remember all the number ones we have. So the software engineer in this companies. I don't know if he still has the spirit, but the moment you go up to the founders and to the investors, I think it's a different way of thinking. And again, it comes from the society. So it's really hard for somebody outside to just read a book and figure it out. Especially, see, one reason we wrote the book, it wasn't just me, it was also my friend Arun Rao. He had the idea, actually. I thought it was a stupid idea. Then he convinced me. One reason we wrote the book was we are so dissatisfied with the books that existed. And later we got dissatisfied with the movies and with TV series. I mean, the books especially, they tend to talk only about the people who made millions of dollars. Uh, Silicon Valley is about all the people who didn't, uh, all the people who failed. It's about Zero Spark coming out with this great idea of the computer on a desk for children. And then after a few iterations, it becomes the Macintosh at Apple. But the ideas are very important and the, the history is much more complicated. Some people start from the microprocessor. Microprocessor is an idea that came to a Japanese guy, was implemented by an Italian guy. Talk about immigrants. And of course, somebody at Intel was in charge and he was the one who made it a prototype. But it wasn't a typical corporate way of thinking. Imagine IBM, General Electric, they could have made, invented a microprocessor 10 years earlier. Why they didn't? So they were thinking different. They had different people. So I think there's a lot that is really hard to express in words. I remember Arun spent some time investigating the failures of Silicon Valley. Somebody should write a book just about the failures. I mean, some of the failures go. What was the first Newton? There's been so many projects that failed, but those projects uh, are the history of Silicon Valley. And without them, Silicon Valley would be very different. So Piero, with that, 
Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about, anything you're working on, or contact information if they wanted to get a hold of you or find out more about what you're working on? Well, I have a very messy website, www.scaruffi.com. Last year, I think the Telegraph, one a British newspaper, said that it's the oldest still active website in the world. I'm not sure it's something to be proud of. So you find everything I do there. Uh, one thing I would like to mention, maybe, that, see, sometimes the hobbies become more important than the real life in this place. I started the interdisciplinary events about 10 years ago called the Lasers, Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous. And uh, guess what? They spread to more than 30 cities of the world. And last year, we had fifth edition of a festival that we called the Last Festival, Life, Art, Science, Technology, Last Festival. So these are non-profit events. They're just interdisciplinary. We put together scientists, artists, historians, just thinkers, just people who do interesting things. And I think that's the real spirit of Silicon Valley, actually. If you're an interesting person, you are an interesting person. Whether you make a million dollars or not, that's largely an accident. A lot of it depends on luck, on the people you meet. But being an interesting person is important. I started these events just to put together interesting people. They're open to the public. If you're in the Bay Area, come to one. Great. We will have all those links and the information in the show notes. But with that, Piero, I'd like to thank you for the time here today on Silicon Valley. And look forward to, in the future, we'd definitely like to invite you back on, especially after your next book comes out. Thank you. Very good questions. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.